Well, good morning. There's a lot of sand in this world, isn't there? Lots of random small things that we build our lives on that do not last a bit. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a saying because I dislike it so much. I'm sure you've heard it. It's kind of one of the myths of our culture, and it's uh, that uh, you shouldn't talk in the public sphere about religion or politics. You ever hear people say that? Maybe it's the workplace. Don't talk about religion and politics. Maybe it's some family member, your uncle, your grandpa, your aunt, where there's just a general known policy, do not talk about religion and or politics. And uh, it's a pretty big ambition to try to do that. But it's amazing how hard it is to, to do that. Uh, even if you try to dodge those topics, sooner or later we start talking about the God who's above us and made the world. Um, and trying to figure out who he is. Sooner or later, we start talking about uh, the world that we live in and the city we live in and the people who are making policies and procedures and what's going on. And I'm amazed at how easy it is to talk about these things if there's a little, if there's a little bit of space that's created. Um, in Jesus' time, he was confronted by topics of religion and politics and taxes. And today, I hope to look at what he says and actually kind of see how he dodges the topic by focusing on more important things in some ways. Um, Last night, we uh, added our, our neighborhood. We decided to, our, our CB community, um, we uh, go right across the street to the Rolls house. And uh, we all decided that the community wanted to host a block party. So last night, we threw a block party for the neighborhood. It was awesome. It was a beautiful time. You want to put that, that picture up there quickly? Um, we were all hanging out. Kids were playing at the bounce house. A bunch of people eating. And uh, I don't know, it was probably like 70 people or came or something. And it was fun to get to know some new neighbors we hadn't had, we hadn't known, and some that we'd known for, for a while. And uh, as we were hosting this, I was amazed. I think, we had, I think I had five conversations or so that involved God. And this wasn't, I didn't initiate them all. I think I initiated one of them. But the four others, somebody else brought up topics of God and uh, what was going on in their life and their views on religion. It just kind of came up. And it was just, again very natural when there's a little bit of space in our culture and a little bit of a sense of safety like I'm not going to get pummeled or or beat up if I mention something that I believe people will actually mention it but we are in general pretty fearful pretty fearful for society when it comes to talking openly about what we believe but when this is the setting like at a block party people kind of share openly what they think about stuff and I I really appreciate seeing those kind of spaces created and I think that 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 cultural cliche that we don't discuss or talk about politics and religions. It really is a fiction to do that. Before Jesus' time, people talked about politics and religion. That's all they talked about. You look at the, most of the writings of the ancients, people talked about how people should relate with people and how people should relate with God or the God. That was the most frequent thing that people wrote about. During the life of Christ, same kind of thing. People were talking about politics, religion. And the real question, and it, obviously we're doing it today. In fact, you look at almost any news station of whatever brand or variety. What is everyone talking about? The weather? Yeah, that's like the highlight, right? You get a little weather, but the truth is it gets really lame in Portland for about nine months of the year to keep talking about the weather because it's rainy again tomorrow. And so it kind of gets old. But anyway, the point is we, there is so much political banter. And so what I, what I would like to actually look at today is not so much how can we participate in political banter, but how the heck do we get out of it into something more significant? It's an important thing to consider. How do we talk about God in a way that honors God? How do we talk about these things? How do we talk about uh, what's going on in our city, in our world, in a way that honors God and doesn't just 
honored the powers that be. Uh, issues of, of states and, and politics. What I love about what Jesus does, and we're going to learn from him this morning, is he, he gives it the importance that it's due, but he doesn't give it too much importance when it comes to what was going on in his day. He doesn't let it dominate his whole way of thinking that that's the only thing he ends up thinking on. So if you have a Bible, flip to Mark 12. If you don't have a Bible, probably right in front of you in the pew there, there's a uh, blue Bibles there. If you want to flip open, we're going to be in Mark 12. We'll be looking at one paragraph. Uh, from the 13th verse to 17th verse. So flip there, and as you're doing that, um, I wanna, these are the three things I want to try to do with this passage. First, I want to I look at what this passage is, is not focused on. Because this passage is not focused on some things. There's some things that Jesus deliberately doesn't focus on. And I want to look at why, uh, why this passage is important to Jesus. Why what's going on in this particular moment in Jesus' life, why it's important to him. And then I want to ask the question, why is it important to us? And that's where I want to end today is why is this important to us, what this passage communicates. So you got your Bible. We're going to be reading Mark 12, verse 13 through 17. This is God's word. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Pretty friendly waters right there. Set a trap. It literally is the word, the trap of It's literally a, the word you use for like of trapping a fish or trapping an animal. It's, it's the same exact word. I want to trap him in this talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful then to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Lord, would you somehow, through your kindness and through your work in each of our lives, through the work of your spirit and your word, would you somehow allow us to experience what those people experienced, marveling at what Jesus had to say. Lord, we recognize there are a lot of things to be amazed at in this world. Random things on YouTube. Amazing works of wonder, Lord, Mount Hood, the Pacific Coast, the city we live in. There are incredible things, but Lord, in your kindness, help our, us to grow today, to get above political banter and debate, and to see the image of the living God, and to learn to honor you with our whole entire existence. Lord, help us. We need your strength. We need your help. We need your wisdom and we come to you because we know you joyfully and lovingly give those things to us as we ask. So, Lord, give us faith to receive. Open up our ears. Help us to see Jesus. And when seeing him, conform us to his likeness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is this passage not focused on? Before I really specifically address that, I just want to paint two uh, pictures of two different lives. One, uh, two very different worlds. One a person then, how they might experience what was going on, and a person today caught in the normal presses of life. 
So imagine a man by the name of Eliezer in the time of Christ. He's 35 years old. He was a peasant from Galilee who had come down to the Passover. His brother had been sold into slavery, literally, because he couldn't pay the land tax on the land that his family had owned. His parents had been reduced to begging, and he himself, at the best of times, was just a day away from complete destitution. Now, Eliezer had been following Jesus for a while now, and he was, he was there for the triumphal entry that had just happened a few days earlier. And he thought to himself, could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? He had heard what Jesus had said about the temple. And he stood there amazed. He was astonished by how the powers that be were being intellectually outwitted by this simple Galilean and how he was, out, was outgunning all these national leaders that everyone feared and revered. But no one really respected that much. And he, he had returned to his lodgings confidently one night that Jesus was obviously no friend of Caesar's. And, and surely after a little bit of a proactive movement, Jesus would, maybe within the next few days, he might lead an armed rebellion, what he had hoped for for much of his life, against the occupying forces of Rome. So he returned to the, to the temple day after day, mostly so he could possibly hear, not just about the kingdom of God in terms of the way Jesus was speaking about it, but to hear maybe possibility of, of some secret plans of a coup. Something that now there were enough people that there could be a potential overthrow of the powers that be. And instead, he kept hearing parables about mustard seeds, about God's kingdom being like the salt of the earth, about Gentiles and pagans participating in the Messianic banquet. He kept hearing Jesus talk about sinners preceding the righteous in his kingdom. And he, he was trying to understand this. He's thinking to himself, was this the kingdom? And he had to really think it over. And he was still thinking about the day that Jesus taught this. Second scene, put yourself here in Portland. Uh, a girl named Rachel. We'll call her. We'll call her Rachel. She lives here in Portland. She's 19 years old. She grew up in a Christian home. Pretty well thought of by her church. But lately, her walk with God was more like a, a big stumble. She had uh, she'd been making some really great friends at the university, and at times, her part-time job at Coles had she felt closer to the people she was working with there than the people at her church. And her, her friends that she'd been getting to know for now months, they wanted her to come out and do some things that she knew that no Christian girl should do. And so she had this tension in her. She loved her family. She loved her church. But the call from, from her friends was growing stronger, and she had to decide which group she was going to belong to most. And she's thinking about that even today. Two very different people, and I think this passage speaks to both scenarios with a lot of weight. So I want to just try to open our ears to, to consider what this passage is saying. I want you to know this. This passage is not focused primarily on politics, but actually on, on people, on individuals. And not just on people in general, but this passage is not just on, focused on, on politics or political banter, but on people and their relationship with God. Jesus does something here in this passage that's pretty stunning. And one of our temptations is to do this. And I think it's really important to initially qualify a few things. It's what this passage is not saying. Because many of us, when we read this passage, we immediately wanted to start a discussion about church-state relationships. And, and read, actually, multiple passages 
on top of this passage, which I don't think actually Jesus would be, would be honored by. So I think many of us, and many, many preachers and, and scholars actually will take this passage, what we see there in, in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll read on top of it Romans 13 and, and 1 Peter 2. If you're familiar with those passages, Romans 13, the whole first half of that chapter is about how to relate with the government in this world. And he concludes, Paul concludes with the statement in Romans 13, verse 7. He says, pay to all what is owed to you, or owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There's something that's owed to the people who pave your road. There's something who's, that's owed to the people who create schools. There's something that's owed to the government who enforces law. So Paul says, yeah, there's some things that are owed. First, uh, first Peter 2, Peter says really explicitly, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He says, to the emperor as though supreme, even though he knows he's not supreme, as though supreme, and to governors as sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the word of God teaches these things, but one of the things that we, we can do is that, 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 and this is not a ch- tangential side thing, this is really, really central, that our, this passage that Jesus and what he's doing here is not primarily for us to see how should the church relate with the state. That's not what he's doing here. In the Gospel of Mark, it, helps, it, doesn't, it might give us a bit of understanding about how the church should relate with the state. But, but Jesus here, he's not primarily here in this passage condemning even the intermingling of those things. That sometimes politics and religion and family and economics are closely tied together. People's view on the Bible, he's not there to do that. He's not actually there to sort it out for us. So if you're willing to, with me, to set some of those things aside, even though they're all important for us to consider and to think about. In fact, I mean, even in my own Bible, okay, I, I don't know if you're, your Bible, the very top heading which isn't inspired by God, but the very top heading in my passage, it says, paying taxes to Caesar. As though the main point of the passage was paying taxes to Caesar. But I don't believe that this passage is is primarily about quietly paying taxes, though that's important. Other passages teach us. This is really about Jesus' conflict with the national Jewish leaders of his day. And there's some things that we can learn about in our day that it speaks to, and it, it says a lot. But one of the things that Jesus does, he's not willing to let the topic of politics and taxes to rule the conversation. He's not willing for them to narrow the conversation so tightly that the only thing that's on the table are taxes and Caesar. He's not willing to go there. He brings God to the very center of reality, and he wants to see the whole picture. And when he does that, he changes the entire question. See, my friends, one of the things that we have to be willing to accept is that Jesus has a very different agenda than his adversaries in this passage. And in fact, I would actually encourage you to think along these lines, that if, if, you, if you stay only at the taxes and government issues that, that Jesus brings up here in Mark 12, if you stay there, we've in many ways fallen for the trap that was set for Jesus. Jesus didn't allow them to only have political arguments about taxation. He moved it to a far different area. So after that caveat, after that little side thing, I want to, I want to now with you just look at Jesus' life, his time, his ministry, what's going on, what, what is, why is this passage important to him, and then we'll, we'll look into our setting and what it speaks to us today. So why is this important to Jesus? And, and by Jesus, I mean the Jesus we see in the Bible and the time and the place that he was really experiencing. Jesus said it's pretty obvious, you look at the previous passage, that Jesus was being, he was surrounded by his enemies. He's in the, the, a very dangerous spot for him 
in terms of his relationships with other people. In Mark 12, 12, the, the verse right before this, you remember where it ended last week? It says that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. They feared the people, and they perceived that he had told this parable against them, and so they left, and they went away. And after they leave and go away, they kind of come up with another battle plan. And Jesus is surrounded in this setting by his enemies. And there's two different groups. There's the Herodians and there's the Pharisees. First, you've got to ask, who, who are they? What's their angle? And I want to pause for a moment over the Herodians. The Herodians were this, this circle of, of people who were supported and beneficiaries of the dynasty of, that Herod had created. And it was a, there was a lot of layers to this dynasty. It wasn't just him and his little family. He had a huge family. But it wasn't just him and his huge family. There were people who were paid by him. And actually, they benefited greatly from the Roman occupation. They, they benefited personally, financially. Herod had enough money to build some of the biggest buildings the world had ever created, that had ever been created in the entire world. Herod had money, and he knew how to preserve himself and how to fight for his own rights. And, and anybody who was cruising around Palestine and the countryside who was talking about the kingdom of God was a potential threat to Herod and to his dynasty, to these Herodians. And, it, and it's, it's here that we have to think that they, when they wanted to create a trap and to neutralize Jesus, they had some significant financial reasons for doing it. They thought Jesus was a potential threat to all that they had. Yet, on the other hand, on the, on the right hand, you had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, literally the word Pharisee means set apart ones. They were the holy ones. They were the ones that were religiously pure. They were a group of associates who, they had a relative popularity with the people. But one of the things that they really had going for them is they, they were convinced of this, that God would restore the kingdom of Israel in all of its beauty and all that it should be and all of its prosperity when the people of God became religiously pure enough when they were upright enough, when they were committed themselves enough to the Torah, at that point, then God's kingdom would have the freedom to come. But the Pharisees, they, had their, they actually had a bit of a militant wing also. It wasn't just they were, they were peaceful. They weren't just committed to piety and to the Torah. They actually really had a political agenda that was, that was pretty substantial. Uh, in Josephus' book, The Antiquity of the Jews, and uh, the wars of, of the Jews. He says, he says a number of things. But one of the, he brings up a story. And this, Josephus wrote during the same time that, that Christ was alive. And he saw and he witnessed these things. And he said there was a time in which 6,000 Pharisees refused to take an oath of allegiance to Caesar and to Herod. They were combined. <laughs> he re, they refused to give this oath of allegiance, 6,000 of them. And so what they did is that Herod had some of their key leaders killed. The Herodians and the Pharisees were, were, they were bloody enemies. They really didn't appreciate each other for multiple reasons. Another man, uh, Justice, he, uh, he, had, he was a Galilean, and he led this revolt against taxation. And his whole purpose was that we, and many of the Pharisees were totally behind him. They had this distinct motto, no king but God. And for them, when they said no king but God, it also meant no taxes should be paid except for to God. And so paying taxes to these people, was they, they really despised it. And Caesar was honored as a king, and they said, no, we don't have any king, we just have God as a king. So there's just these, these two factions, two very different reasons, uh, two different ways of relating to Rome. But what's amazing is that they somehow come together. To, in one, they, they agree, these enemies agree with one thing. We need Jesus out of the picture. 
We need Jesus dead. It's, it's kind of a hard, hard to imagine how diverse these two groups are and how rarely it would be for the Herodians and the Pharisees to agree on anything. It'd be kind of like, you take some, say, say the Israeli army and Hamas. Together. Saying, you know what? There's this rabbi in Jerusalem that we need to take out. And somehow these two groups actually agreeing and say, you know what, let's fight together. It'd be like, especially when the tensions were higher in Ireland, when the, the, the Catholics and the Protestants were literally fighting against each other with military means. It'd be like if those, if those two groups in Ireland said, you know what, there's this one particular Catholic priest who was annoying both of us, let's take him down. And they sat down together to figure out a way to do that. There's an irony to these two combining their mutual hatred for Jesus. Do you remember the last time in the, in the Gospel of Mark that the, that the Herodians and the Pharisees combined powers and they agreed on something? It was right after Jesus had healed a man uh, on the Sabbath day in, in Mark 3. And this is what it says about them. It says the Pharisees went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. Now this is Mark 3, 6. This is chapters before what we see here in, in Mark 12. It's chapters, and it's probably years of time. It could be two, maybe even three years between these two events. There have been years of these two that the only thing they could agree on is that, agree on is that they were against Jesus. And you can imagine these guys, they, they come up and, they, and they're making their compliments. They're dripping sar with sarcasm. And they say, over the top probably, it's a very public setting, Hundreds, probably thousands of people are there in the temple listening to Jesus. And they, and they, with vocal sarcasm, they say, you know, we know. We know you don't fear anybody. And slash, not even us. We know that you really don't care about what other people think about you. only care about God. Tell me. Tell us. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If, he's, if they say yes... If Jesus says yes, the whole crowd that is pleased with Jesus, the whole crowd in many ways betrays their own nation, and it's as though they, he just bowed the knee to Caesar. He loses popular support. The crowds are no longer before him. If he says no, right there on the spot, they had the legal grounds for arresting Jesus for encouraging revolution and political dissent. It's a catch-22. And Jesus is right in the crosshairs. And I can imagine them right before they step, step up to talk to Jesus, I can imagine them whispering among themselves and saying things like, let's see if this young Galilean upstart can, can face the big boys of Jerusalem. And they show up and they say, let's kick this little peasant boy out of Jerusalem. Let's see if he can play with us. And they walk right up and the Herodians and the Pharisees think, that they have Jesus right in the crosshairs. And you know what he does? He moves out of the crosshairs. He wisely moves out of the crosshairs they, by asking, what, what, would you just do me a favor? Can you show me which coin do you guys use for that? And you could imagine all these Pharisees and Herodians shuffling around for the coin that's worth about a day's wage in their pockets. And they reach, one of them reaches, who's the nearest to Jesus, reaches for his nearest denarius and and hands it to Jesus. Now all of them, when he asks, I don't doubt it, all of them when he asks, what, what coin is it? Can you show me which coin it is? I imagine multiple 
people want to be the honorable one who pulls out the coin and says, you stupid guy, this is a denarius. You don't even have these in Galilee, do you? I'll bet you never see one of these. You only sell corn and, and deal with weed, and, and you have really stupid things you trade with people. But this is what coins look like. And they pull out that coin, and, and Jesus grabs it. And I imagine him looking at it, flipping it over a couple of times, and he says to them, Who, whose image is this? Who's, I, I can't really read Greek. Whose inscription is this around the edge of the coin? And right then they think, man, not only, not only can he not answer us, he doesn't even know what the coin looks like. It's like going back to kindergarten and taking a dime and being like, this is what a dime is. This is a nickel. And that's, what they, that's how they're treating Jesus. And right then, as he, as he as it were, seems like he's going to fall for the trap, he springs a, a trap on them. He springs a trap on them. And he says, whose image is this? And they have to look closely at the image on it. Can you pull up the slide with the, the image of the coin? Uh, this, during Jesus' time, Tiberius Caesar was, uh, was, had been emperor for, for years, from about 1480 to like, I forget, 40-something AD, after the time of Christ. So he was, he had been, he was an emperor during most of Christ's adult life, all of his adult life and beyond it too. And so this is the coin that he, that he would probably be holding. And on it, it says, Tiberius Caesar... Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, on the side around, around the head. In other words, I am the divine son of the divine king who preceded me. I am the son of God. It's really the claim that was being made on that coin. On the other, on the other side, you see right up there, it says Pontiff Maxime. Pontiff Maxime, it means high priest or maximum priest. The, the highest of priests in the whole Roman Empire is Caesar, Tiberius. This is the coin, and, and he, he asks them to pull out the images that they carry with them in their pockets. And, and, the, and this image of this man who claimed to be semi-divine, at least that, and claimed to be the highest religious leader in the entire empire, he says, tell me, what does it say here? And who does this look like? And then he turns to them, and he says, so if Caesar is a god, and, it, and if this is his image, it's pretty clear, and I think that Jesus subtly does this, he doesn't say it, but it's clear, pretty clear, this, this might be a violation of the second commandment, which is, you shall not make any graven images of God, but here your own coin claims that this is a god, claims that it's, he's a high priest. And so Jesus kind of says, why don't you guys give the coins back to Caesar that, that he made? Why don't you give it back to him? And I, I want to unpack that because I don't think he's mainly saying, he's just affirming, you know what, you should pay your taxes. The Bible teaches that elsewhere. But I think here he's kind of, he's hinting at this. Why don't you give that blasphemous king who claims to be the son of God, who claims to be high priest, why don't you give him back his coin? You're the one who has the coin. I don't even have one. You're the one that's carrying around an image of a false god in your pocket. Why don't you give your coins back to Caesar? I think that's what he's doing. He's, he's kind of playing with them and letting them see that, they, that in some ways he makes them look bad in front of the whole crowd. And he says, he says why don't you pay it back? He uses a different word. When, when they ask Jesus about, about the taxes, he uses a different word. And the word is the idea of paying back. Why don't you pay it back? Somebody made that coin. Why don't you pay it back? 
You, don't, you didn't have to get that coin. Any more than if you and I saw Benjamin lying on the ground, we would, we would pick it up. But we pick it up because we think it's valuable. We see a dollar bill, hundred dollar bill, whatever. You and I would pick it up because we see it's a value and we believe the world we live in sees it's valuable also. And Jesus says, that coin right there, why don't you just give it back to Caesar? It's his after all, isn't it? And also there's this almost this underlining uh, manifesto of revolution that he doesn't I think he, I do think he actually hints that. There, there had been a saying during one of the last revolts, give to the Gentiles what they deserve or what they have earned. Same word. What the, pay back the Gentiles what they have earned. And here Jesus says, why don't you pay back Caesar what he had created? And he kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. By the way, if you are a part of the system of, of, of money exchange with, his, with Rome, that's your guys' issue. That's not my issue. You have to deal with that. So Jesus is kind of saying that to him. And you notice that Jesus hasn't fallen for the trap. Instead, he, instead of saying, you know, I, I'm going to consent to taxation, he says, yes, you should pay your taxes. But he says the biggest deal is God's own lordship, God's own sovereignty. Unlike the Herodians and the Pharisees who carry around pagan money in their pockets to this pagan king, Jesus is not hobnobbing with the Roman governments to save his neck. Jesus is not compromising. And, and he almost like, you could imagine that the feeling that they all feel, that they have this image. Literally in a couple years, in, 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 in not too long, there would be some people who would literally not carry the coins around. This is a very subtle denarius. There are denarius coins that are very, I'm, I'm going to be frank here with you, they're very pornographic. They have images of different kinds of positions. So, and this is just one of the more subtle coins. So when, when, when there would come a time later on in Israel's history where people wouldn't even touch the coins. They'd say, you know what? We don't want any of this. But Jesus knows something. He knows something else, not just how to put them in their place, but he, he wants them to learn something. And this is how he shifts the conversation. Jesus knew that the image that your, your life is formed by is the thing that forms the rest of your life. He knew whatever image your life is formed by and is informed by is what is going to inform and transform the rest of your life. In many ways, he wants to change the topic. And he says, what do you think that God looks like? What do you think God's image looks like? Do you think God's image looks like Caesar on his throne in Rome? Is that what God looks like? Does your God look like coins in your pocket? What's your motive here? Is your God Jesus Christ? Who's, what's the image of God? When you and I think about an image of God, who is God, we have to pause and say, what does God look like to me? Do I believe I understand what God looks like? And he changes the entire topic to ask the question of, you know what God looks like, don't you? Then you should yourself give that same image back. What should you and I look like? I think the question of what we look like and what we think God looks like are incredibly important. And this is where I want to shift from Jesus' time. I want to ask the question, why is this so important to us? Because it's obvious that none of us are carrying... Did anybody have a denarius in their pocket? I was hoping, because I, I was looking for one. I was hoping that somebody actually would have one. Nobody? Been once? Twice? Okay. So there are a lot of these coins, but apparently we don't live in that day. But I think there's some important things that this passage has to say to us right now. So what does this passage mean for us today? Jesus said that, uh, that the coin that bore 
uh, image, uh, Caesar's image in a similar way. It belonged to Caesar, but, but by implication, we who bear God's image belong to God. That's the argument that he makes. And I want to just say real quickly to you that this is not a side issue. This is, the image stuff is not a side issue in the Bible. It's central to the Bible. What does God really look like? What is the image of God? It's incredibly important throughout the Bible. And I want to just highlight a few verses. I'm not going to like work through all these verses, but jot some of these down because in the Bible, image is everything. What do you actually think God looks like? That's incredibly important in the Bible. Here's a few passages. Some of these are going to be like, you totally know this. I would encourage you to meditate on these at some point if you can this week. Galatians 1, or not, excuse me, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, talks about when God formed man, he made in his own image, after his own likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. People were supposed to look like God and to be in God's image and likeness. However, we see through the Bible that image gets marred. People don't take on the exact likeness of God, but there's a certain fallenness to, to the image of God. But then in Colossians 1.15, it talks of Jesus and says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that the light of the gospel of the glory of God, or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It says that Christ is the image of God. Romans 8.29 says, if that's true about Christ, how does that relate with us? It says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That this transformation, it's going on right now and it's presently happening. happening. And Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, it says, And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says right now, as it were, the image is being restored. The tarnish is being removed. The image is being, is being transformed to look again like it should have. That's going on. Same, same kind of idea in Colossians 3. He develops it throughout the whole chapter. Colossians 3 verse 10, though, says, And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of its creator, after the image of its creator. This image talk is throughout the Bible, and he says it supremely, the day will come in the future when that will happen entirely. And so 1 Corinthians 15, 49, all about the resurrection, he says that we who have borne the image of the man of dust, talking about our connection with Adam and the old humanity, he says we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So one of the, one of the running questions throughout the Bible is, in whose image are you? What should we look like? What should people be like? which is a very political question. It's a very city-based, family-based, how do we relate with each other? And so he says the, the image that you owe to God is the image that he had stamped on you originally. Are you giving him what he's owed? And he brings up the idea of inscription and writing something on it. I don't know about you. Whenever, you, whenever I write my name on something, it's because I actually think it's valuable. You, you know what I'm saying? If you have a, a water bottle that you don't care about, it's like disposable. You, I mean, I don't, I never write my name on a water bottle I'm going to dispose of. But a water bottle, a Nalgene that's like my friend, that I've had for years, hands down, you put your name on that thing. My Bible, I not only have my name on the front and the inside of my Bible, I have my email, my number, and I promise a reward if you find this thing. Because I care about it. I, I wrote my name on it. If I lose this, I'll be so sad. 
I'll just let you know. That's my own. That's, that's my big name thing. I put my name on it. You and I do it all over the place. We, 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 if we value something, we inscribe our name upon it. And when God puts his name on us, when God puts his name, he says, I'm going to inscribe my name, my very image on you. It's, in one way, it's a way of saying, I so value you. I so care about you that I want my name etched upon you. You think of a king of old who, who, wrote, who puts his name on a coin. It's because he cares about the coin. He recognizes its value, its worth, and the metals that make it up. In some ways, when God stamps his name and his imprint, his image on us, it's a way of saying loud and clear, I value you. You're mine. In many ways, when it comes to baptism, taking on the name, that's what baptism is all about. It says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say in the names. It says in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's when a person is baptized, when I... When, during the lunch, when I sit down with a few people who are interested in baptism, what it really is is asking the question, do I so believe in Jesus that I want to take his name on? That I want to be a bearer of his name and of his image? Do I believe in Jesus in that way? A name being etched on something is huge. Now, in the Bible itself, we see this testimony about people. We see in this passage both the hypocrisy of humanity and we also see the heights of humanity. We see the, this kind of hypocrisy represented in the Pharisees and the Herodians. But you and I have to recognize that there's hypocrisy in each one of us. They, they came to Christ thinking if I just butter them up, then we could trip them up. Totally wrong. They wanted to catch them in his words. And each one of us, the reality is we find ourselves caught in how we sin against God with our words. They wanted flattery on the front end. But in the end, they really wanted him destroyed, and they have a hypocrisy. They wanted to relate with Christ publicly in one way, but privately, they despised him. And the fact is, every one of us, when it comes to our own sin, we have to recognize this passage both teaches that we've sinned against God, and yet, we belong to God. We belong to him. Some of us here uh, this week have, have really doubted our own worth. How, whether we're valuable at all. We've even loathed our own existence. We've looked at ourselves in the mirror and, and wished that we were dead. Some of us have uh, lost sight of the intrinsic value of being in God's image and likeness. That the coin looks so messed up and so dirty that when we look at ourselves, we feel mostly shame instead of joy. My friends, Jesus Christ was a man of joy. He was acquainted with greater joys than any of us have ever known outside of him. And when you look at yourself in the mirror and you feel ashamed of yourself, I want you to recognize this, that tarnish, that, that bit of, that marring of the image of God in you. It can be restored. It can be bright again. It doesn't have to remain dark. If when you look at yourself, you contemplate killing yourself, I'd like you to understand this, that the best way to deal with that is not by trying to clean up your act and get the coin, to scrub the coin, but actually to give to God the coin that is his, your very existence. First and foremost, since you and I belong to God, we have to give ourselves back to God. We have to recognize that the cosmic coin collector not only values us in some abstract way, but we are his prized possession in this universe. If the moon covers the sun tomorrow... No big deal. No big deal. 
if you, if you don't walk in the light of the glory of God, eternal consequences. But friends, if you miss the eclipse, do not miss the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because that is the thing that is going to matter. Will you reflect the image of God? And how in the world can we even do that? How can our, the shame that some of us possess, how can that happen after all the marring and the sin? And how can that image be restored? My friends, I just want to point right back to Jesus. We must see the image of God in Jesus Christ in order to fully reflect the image of God in our lives. You cannot do it alone. I can't. The most depressing days of my life, I love this, Corey Ten Boom. I always think about this. She says, look around you and be distressed. Look within you and be depressed. Look to Jesus and be at rest. My friends, if you, there's something that, that psychologists call, it's a social theory. Psychologists call it mirroring. In which the person you're talking to, often you'll mirror their emotions, Okay. Someone's looking at you and smiling. You know what you end up doing? Even if you don't want to, you start smiling. You, there's a mirroring effect of seeing somebody else. If someone looks really depressed, imagine, okay, imagine your spouse comes home from the, day, the day's work or from being gone on errands, and, they, and your spouse shows up, looks you in the eye and goes, what do you do? You go, oh, what's wrong? Or, oh. You know what I'm saying? You just get, I, I, I don't want that aura. And then other times, if somebody, if your, your spouse walks in the door, and they go, man, God has been so good today. You're like, what, what happened? Did we win the lottery? Or what's, go, what's going on? Like, what, what happened today? There's something like automatically, someone's happy, and we're like, ah! And someone's really sad, and we're like, now, the deal is, guys, if you look, if you look at Jesus Christ, and depending on if you see him clearly or not, your joys and your sorrows will begin to mirror his joys and sorrows. And the most important thing for our lives to be formed back into the image of God is to be looking at the right face. And the right face is not your spouse. It's not your coworker. The right face is not your mayor or your governor or your president. The right face that you and I must stare into to see the glory of God is the face of Jesus Christ. My friends, the church is no pundit of any political agenda. Our, no matter whether it's a Democrat or Republican, conservative, liberal, no matter who is in office, we find joy by staring at the face of Jesus Christ. And without that, we will lose joy. We'll lose hope. We'll, we'll listen to the news again, and we'll start being like, oh, what? Okay. Oh, I'm happy. Oh, I'm sad. Oh, I'm happy. Oh, I'm sad. Like, you will ride the roller coaster straight to the pit of hell. My friends, you and I, if we look at the face of Jesus, we will be transformed. Our life will be flipped around. It won't be just an up and down roller coaster. We'll realize Jesus is actually in control. And he's actually got a great plan for our lives. And we can trust him. My friends, you and I are not first and foremost white or African American. We are not first and foremost Hispanic or Arab or Swedish or Polish or Egyptian or any other nationality. You and I are not first and foremost even Americans. You and I are not first and foremost Portlanders or Oregonians. You and I, first and foremost, are gods. We are Christians. 
and we need to reflect the face of Jesus Christ. Those two characters that I introduced, I want to tell you a little of where their story goes. Eliezer, he was furious when he heard Christ talk like this. Rather than being clear, he had set his hope on a man who had promised the redemption of Israel, but he spoke in riddles, mustard seeds, and prodigal sons, and he felt betrayed, and he felt angry. So angry, in fact, that uh, a few days later, Pilate's residence, he was shouting out the words with everyone else, just crucify him, crucify him. He'd grown to despise the man. Yet when he, he witnessed uh, the tortured form that Christ took and the battering of this man and him being drugged up the Via Dolorosa and all the shame and the spitting, he remembered the words that Jesus had spoken a few days before when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, if you, even if you had only known the day of, your appear, of my appearing, I would have brought you peace, but... Now that day of peace is hidden from your eyes and because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you, you'll be destroyed. Israel, in his, as he thought about it, Israel had suffered for 500 years under all different kinds of oppression. But now, now he's looking at Jesus suffering at the hands of the nations, even the hands of his own nation. And it was, it was like the destiny of Israel was being symbolized and played out and summed up in, in him who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as he watched this all happening and he, he heard a Roman say, maybe this, he hear say, this is the Son of God. He said, perhaps, perhaps this is the Messiah. Perhaps this is the kingdom. And he sat and he thought on it for the next three days in Jerusalem. As for Rachel, the girl we'll call Rachel in Portland, temptations are strong. Again, cute boys, good job, successful career, the trappings of life beckoning at her door. And then one night she read this passage in her devotions and she remembered that not too long ago she had given herself to God and that God had been faithful up till then. And she realized that she should not be faithless to him now. That it was God and not the world that she really belonged to. But friends, the stories of our lives, depending on who we are looking to to define our reality, will mirror the world of the kingdom of God or mirror the world of the kingdoms of this age. My friends, as we break bread together in a moment, remember that that body was broken, that that blood was shed so that you would be a slave to no one, but that you would find all your identity, all your hope, all your joy in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you that uh, this passage is less about politics and more about who we are before you. Whether we are full of hypocrisy that we see in ourselves right now, or whether we are enjoying walking as people who have the renewed image of God within us. Father, I pray in your name you would give us the, the joy of actually giving our entire self back to you. Lord, you know many of us, the coin has been marred and damaged and has been 
burnt and, and destroyed even. And the, the image of God, it looks almost like a slight memory. But Lord, would you give us new life? Would you breathe into us? Would you sustain every one of our heartbeats until we are conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ? Father, we trust you to keep doing that work in us. We don't deserve it, but we need it. And thank you that you call us precious and valuable for Jesus' sake. Amen.